0: By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter.
1: Hi, my name's Toby Young. I'm an associate editor of Quillette based in London. And today I'm talking to Jonathan Rauch, Jonathan is the author of several books, including The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After Fifty, Gay Marriage, Why It's Good for Gays, Good for Straits, and Good for America, and perhaps the book he's most famous for, Kindly Inquisitors, The New Attacks on Free Thought*, which was published in 1993 and then updated in 2013. Jonathan has a new book out, which is sort of a sequel to Kindly Inquisitors, called The Constitution of Knowledge. Jonathan, welcome to the Quillette podcast. Tell us about The Constitution of Knowledge.
2: This is a new book on the attacks on our system that converts information into knowledge and disagreement into facts, which I call The Constitution of Knowledge. Subtitle is A Defense of Truth, because this is a system that that helps us distinguish truth from falsehood on a social scale. And it's come under attack from a number of different directions. One of them is social coercion, which people have called cancel culture, where activists have discovered that they can intimidate dissenters and manipulate the information environment in the that way. Another is disinformation, industrial scale trolling, the sort of thing that Putin gets up to and that Donald Trump got up to. And both of these things, I argue, are fundamental attacks on our ability to distinguish truth as a society. And the book is about them and how to understand them and especially how to push back against them.
1: You introduced the subject of the constitution of knowledge by talking about President Trump's disregard for the truth and the use by him and his supporters and his aides of misinformation, particularly to try and discredit journalists who are publishing disobliging things about him. I was slightly nervous about rooting your defence of truth and free speech in what is now a fairly common trope on the liberal left, this concern about post-truth and associating the disregard for truth and use of misinformation as a political weapon with the right and the far right and with kind of trolls, with political undesirables. My worry is partly that I think that that's exaggerated misinformation and the success of misinformation campaigns is invoked as the reason people voted for Trump in 2016, the reason people voted for Brexit in the UK. It's to sort of not take seriously the ordinary people's reservations about liberal left-wing political parties and their candidates, and just imagine that they've been brainwashed and manipulated by troll armies, bots, and so forth. But also, I suppose there's the concern that in focusing on the right-wing sinners, you are neglecting the left-wing sinners. I know that you do devote space in the book to decrying cancel culture, and you talk about the atmosphere of censoriousness on college campuses. But isn't the root of the problem the postmodernist assault on epistemological realism. Isn't that what you've really got to get to grips with? And was this throat clearing section really necessary?
2: Yeah, it was really necessary. And the reason is that what Trump and his troll armies were getting up to was not ordinary political lying. You know, Barack Obama says that the Health Care Act, allow everyone to keep their insurance if they are happy with it. And that turns out not to be true. And we all say politicians are liars. Isn't that bad? So that kind of thing has always gone on and it's conventional and it's not great for democracy. But what Trump and his troll armies got up to was an entirely different sort of thing. It wasn't conventional political lying. It was the adaptation to liberal democratic society of disinformation tactics that were developed and perfected by Russians, among others, specifically the so-called firehose of falsehood, where you dump so much falsehood and half-truth and confabulation out there that no one can keep up. People become disoriented and confused and cynical and much more open to manipulation by demagogues. These are very effective tactics. They're known to work, but they had never been tried in the United States, for example, before. And far from being trivial, largely as a result of those tactics, a majority of Republicans, like, you know, 40 to 70 million Americans, depending how you count, believe that Joe Biden is not the properly elected president and the election was stolen, which is just factually wrong. And an even larger number are uncertain. If you believe elections matter and that democracy matters and that people should be fact based in their critiques of democracy, that's very worrying. But the other thing you say, which is very true and very important, you mentioned sort of the left wing versus the right wing, and isn't the left wing and postmodernism the bigger problem? And I'm kind of arguing that they're actually both different flavors of the same problem which is the use of these techniques of information warfare and of nihilism to confuse and disorient and undermine, and also to intimidate and isolate and deplatform? And then in some ways we should regard the right and the left as similar in those ways, and we should regard free speech and liberalism, tolerance, pluralism, those things as separate from the other two. So that's the case that the book makes. Then it's how to defend the pluralistic side of it. Another worry I have
1: is that if you endorse the liberal critique of Trump and the success of right-wing parties and candidates across the world, the kind of liberal critique of populism as being caused by misinformation, social media, and unregulated public square. Aren't you effectively giving sucker to those people on the left who want to kind of censor what they identify as misinformation. There is a kind of movement now, and it's, I think, gained a lot of strength during the year of the pandemic to police the public debate much more carefully and rule out those people you don't regard as being truthful actors. And often this can be used as a sort of pretext for censorship. And the problem with appointing people as gatekeepers of the public square is, first of all, that seems to betray a lack of confidence in ordinary people to kind of work out what's true and what's false. They need the help of these educated guides to point them towards what the guides think is in their best interest, lest they vote for another Trump or Brexit or something similar. The gatekeepers themselves tend to be left of centre. And that means that they're distrusted by people on the right. And they also have often this slightly contemptuous, snobbish attitude for those less well educated than themselves. And that sort of comes across and that also contributes to a lack of confidence by the deplorables in these gatekeepers. They're not disinterested guardians of democracy. They're essentially people promoting the interests of their class and one particular political agenda. I'm slightly worried that you're giving too much license to the kind of fact checkers, often self-appointed, for large social media platforms, in the mainstream media, uh, you're saying essentially they they do a good job. They're important. They're essential to the good working of democracy. And yet they don't seem to have contributed much, at least in the past 10 years, to a rising of the tone in public debate, but on the contrary, just to increasing polarisation.
2: Well, in the small question of fact-checkers, I'm actually a fan of the fact-checking project while realising that it has its flaws and difficulties. It's now created an international network of People who are actually doing some good journalism, looking at what's more true and what's less true. And to me, the key to get to the larger point is not whether you have fact checkers or you don't have fact checkers. It's do you have a lot of them and are they reasonably diverse? And that gets to, I think, maybe what to me is the core element of the case that you just made, Toby. Am I implying that humans really need help in finding truth, that we're not very good at going out there into the marketplace of ideas or the social media platform or whatever and deciding what's true? And you're correct. We're bad at that. We're terrible with that. Not because we're stupid, but because we're human and we didn't actually evolve to be truth-seeking creatures, we evolve to be social creatures and to believe what people around us believe and to look to them and trust them in order to have solidarity with our group. We're consensus seekers. That often means that we make bad choices, especially if we're environments that don't have intellectual diversity. So the trick to science and journalism and everything else is to make sure there's plenty of viewpoint diversity so that everyone is having to test their ideas against ideas that are different. Or, you know, you and I may not check our own ideas because we don't like to get involved in debates and we just want to talk to people like ourselves, but someone else will test them. So the important thing is to make sure there's an element of diversity among fact-checkers, among journalists in science and research. And what a whole lot of this book is about is the danger, especially in American academia, and I think the same is also true in Britain to a large extent, that in certain disciplines and departments and maybe even whole universities, we're not seeing the kind of intellectual diversity that we need. And so we're seeing epistemic bubbles where people agree with each other, they go down rabbit holes, they stop tolerating dissent, they stop seeing their own errors. None of us should be trusting ourselves to go out there and find accurate information by ourselves. We need an information environment that is diverse and that is healthy. And that's what the book is fundamentally about. If you're a regular listener to the Quillette podcast, you'll be
3: familiar with BetterHelp, one of our original advertisers. Well, thanks to everything that's happened since early 2020 and the stresses that the pandemic has put on everyone, the online therapy services at BetterHelp are more relevant and in demand than ever. BetterHelp will help you unlock the tools you need to help with motivation, depression, anxiety, battling your temper, stress, dealing with insecurity in relationships or at work, whatever you need. Especially at a time like this, no one should be anxious about admitting that they're going through normal human struggles, because you deserve to be happy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, and you don't even have to see anyone on camera if you don't feel comfortable doing so. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what therapy is really about. And Quillette podcast listeners get 10% off their first month by visiting betterhelp.com quillette. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash, quillette. Thanks to BetterHelp for their sponsorship. And now back to the Quillette podcast.
1: But isn't there a risk that if you concede that the unlettered masses are incapable of finding out the truth for themselves and need guidance, need clear signposts, that you are allowing in certain circumstances that censorship may be justified. The reason social media platforms during the pandemic removed content that challenged the dominant COVID narrative was they believed that it was false And that if you put it out there, people were less likely to observe social distancing rules. And you can imagine similar arguments on the grounds of public safety. I mean, in the past, they were made to protect public morals. Now it's to kind of protect public health or public well-being. But this kind of dynamic in which you imagine that there is the kind of educated elite whose job is to protect the public from their worst impulses. That model can be invoked to justify censorship and is being invoked every day. Isn't the solution to bad speech more speech, not more policing of the public square?
2: I don't know that censorship is really the right word to use for private organizations enforcing or trying to enforce terms of service. I like to reserve censorship for legal measures taken by governments that you can't avoid. But Facebook is a specific problem because it's just so big and so powerful. It's a near monopoly. The great thing about what I call the reality-based community, which is what my book is about. That's about science and research and journalism, and also government and law. All of these networks, these truth-seeking networks of people checking each other, it's not just gatekeepers. There's no one person who can say yes or no. True, false, you can say that, you can't say that, or that is knowledge and this is fact and that's fiction. There are lots of ways through the system, and it's like pumping and filtering stations where each one picks up information, looks at it, compares it with other information, checks it, and then decides whether to pass it on or not. That's what newsrooms do when they get a tip. Someone checks it out if it's worth checking. That's what peer review does in academia. So that's super important. And when you have that network of checkers, that means bad information dies out pretty quickly on the system because it gets rejected by a lot of people looking at it. Good information gets transmitted. Social media, unfortunately, tends to do the opposite. We didn't know this in 1998, but we know it now. Because it's motivated by people clicking on stuff, it relies heavily on outrage and algorithms that promote outrage. And that means that it tends to promote actually falsehood over truth. So what do we do about that? Well, you can't ban the falsehood. I just think that's a bad idea for a bunch of reasons. One is it doesn't work. Another is that it's repressive. I don't even think it's technologically feasible. But what you can do is try to change the rules in the system, the algorithms and so on, so that they do try to be aware of information that seems to be good versus bad information. And they try to amplify better information and disamplify worse information. So, you know, if something that I tweet... That's completely false and defamatory, like accusing someone completely, completely arbitrarily and wrongly of murder, which Donald Trump did. If Facebook says we're going to demote that in our feeds because fact checkers have found it to be false, that's fine. No one's suppressing it. It's still out there. I can still say it. You know, it's been called the distinction between freedom of speech and freedom of reach. It is important, I think, to help assure that there are some distinctions between good information and bad information in terms of how these systems
1: prioritise.
2: It's what we've been doing, journalists, you and I, for the last hundred years. More
1: broadly, if you make the argument for free speech, for truth, on the grounds that they lead to desirable social outcomes... You say that without a belief in objective truth, without a commitment to free speech, our prosperity, social harmony, peace, they depend upon valuing truth, valuing free speech. And that may well be true, but it sounds like a utilitarian defence of those values. You're not arguing that free speech and truth are good in and of themselves, you're saying they're good because they lead to good outcomes. And isn't that one of the shortcomings of Mills on liberty? Whilst he sometimes seems to be saying that liberty and free speech are good in and of themselves, he at times, without quite seeming to notice he's doing so, kind of slips into utilitarian arguments in favor of those things. Aren't you in danger of doing the same thing in this book? Shouldn't you be defending those values as fundamental goods in and of themselves, irrespective of what they might lead to?
2: Interesting. Do you think that Mill's utilitarian emphasis when he slips into it is wrong or simply insufficient?
1: Well, I suppose having been brought up in the Anglo-analytical tradition when I did philosophy at Oxford, I was slightly irritated by Mill seeming to kind of switch back and forth between a deontological and a utilitarian defence of liberty and free speech in on liberty and wanted it to be one or the other. I'm probably less dogmatic about that now. But at the time, I remember feeling slightly irked.
2: Yeah, that's interesting because I didn't notice that in Mill, although it's probably true. But I don't actually mind slipping back and forth and mixing these things together because I think they're all important and it's, it's both and. Freedom, peace and knowledge, which are the three things that the constitution of knowledge is uniquely good at providing, are goods in and of themselves. They're fundamental human goods as opposed to, say, ignorance, oppression and war. So I have no trouble both arguing them as utilitarian and arguing them as goods in themselves. I never spent much time worrying about, well, does it have to be one or the other? Because it seems to me so obviously to to be both. To get to your larger point, maybe you're making a sort of more strategic point about if we rest too much on promising good things out of free speech, then someone comes along and says, well, where are the good things? So maybe free speech isn't so good. And if that's the claim you're making, yeah, it's a very valid point. What I constantly tell free speech defenders of whom I'm one is that the idea that speech that is heretical, blasphemous, seditious, obnoxious, hateful, simply wrong, should be not only permitted, but protected is the single most counterintuitive, crazy sounding social idea in the entire history of the human species, bar none. And the only thing that saves it from the trash heap of history is the fact that it is also the single most successful social principle in the entire history of humanity, bar none. But that means that people like me and people like you and our children and their children and their children down through eternity will have to get up every morning for the rest of our lives and defend these principles from scratch. And that's okay. We just need to be cheerful about that. We've done actually amazingly well in the liberal rest. And part of that is by showing people, well, look, you know, even if you think that government censorship is a good idea in principle because, you know, these ideas are so terrible, we shouldn't be talking about them, it's not going to work in practice. The people who are going to be doing it are not the people that you love and trust, and they'll make terrible decisions and you'll be sorry. So
1: to me, it's just all important. Well, I can think of one strategic argument, but not the one you made, or at least not exactly. If you link free speech to liberal democracy and to the success of capitalism, and if you point out that our prosperity, our way of life is inextricably bound up with a respect for free speech and with the broader constitution of knowledge, as you call it, isn't there a risk that if you're dealing with people on the radical fringes and not so fringed these days who don't value those things, who think that our way of life, Western democracy is fundamentally corrupt, just serves the interests of a propertied elite, is systemically racist, shot through with the system of white supremacy and so on and so forth. Don't you want people who believe those things to nevertheless value free speech? And isn't there a risk that if you point out that free speech is an essential component of the way of life that they're challenging and claim to detest, isn't there a risk that they then won't value free speech? Shouldn't we think of a way of defending it which is going to appeal to them too?
2: Well, the hardcore authoritarians are not the people that you and I are going to succeed with, and they're not the people actually we need to succeed with. The idea of free speech has always had many different kinds of critics or opponents. And actually, frankly, I welcome that. I think in a liberal society, you need those critics. You need the postmodernists and the radicals and the anti-racists and the radical woke people. And the question isn't what do they say and do they agree with me? Because in a pluralistic society, people will say and disagree with all kinds of things. The question is what they do. What are the rules of behavior that we use? So if some postmodernist wants to say there's no such thing as objective truth and we should stop talking about it and free speech is an oppressive, colonialist, conservative, reactionary enterprise and we should dump the whole thing. And then if they publish that in a journal and, you know, it's a peer-reviewed journal and then other people criticize it, it becomes part of the debate and has some influence. I'm fine with that. That's exactly the world I want to live in. Where we draw the line isn't what people say, but then what they do. Instead of going through that process we just talked about, where radical ideas are introduced and evaluated like other ideas, what do people engage in information warfare? By information warfare, I mean organizing and manipulating the social and media environment for political advantage. This is not about criticism. This is about demonizing, deplatforming, isolating, intimidating, socially coercing, and using other techniques that will intimidate, silence create false consensuses, spirals of silence, they're called. I'm afraid to speak out because I think everyone else disagrees with me when in fact everyone else is just also likewise. When we get into those kinds of actual tactics, we're not in the world of saying, so have we persuaded the right people to value free speech? We're into societies that are engaged in illiberal practices. And that's where we draw the line. And that's why I think the work of places like the Free Speech Union becomes very important. You know, you're not going to go around saying, let's get rid of all the postmodernists. They're a threat to free speech you'll be defending them, but you won't be letting them get away with some of the tactics they might use where they want to throw you out of your job because of something you've said that they don't like.
3: And now a promotional message from another podcast, The Jordan Harbinger Show, the podcast where human interest and the world of ideas find their ideal balance. There's a reason Jordan's Show was named a top podcast by Apple in 2018. Recent episodes have brought listeners issues like The Heartless Art of Forced Organ Harvesting, Schizophrenic Mother, A Duty Like No Other, and Why We Believe Weird Things by Quillette author Michael Shermer. If this sounds interesting to you, and I don't know why it wouldn't, look up The Jordan Harbinger Show wherever you listen to your podcasts. That's H-A-R-B like Bob, I-N-G-E-R. And now back to our Quillette podcast.
1: I suppose one of the Difficulties I've encountered at the Free Speech Union is that we have no problem mobilizing people who already believe in free speech. Where our job is much more difficult is in persuading those people, particularly in the academy, who behave in the authoritarian, illiberal way you've described, persuading them that they're wrong. When we invoke J.S. Mill's defense of free speech, or even the slightly more sophisticated Uh, communitarian defence of free speech in Kindly Inquisitors, they regard that as a sort of -of out-of-date argument. They think you haven't taken into account the postmodernist critique of contemporary liberal democracy and of the very notion of objective truth you're assuming a kind of idealised notion of society which has now been completely debunked. We now know it is just a tribal conflict between different interested groups divided largely along identitarian lines. And by neglecting that, by not taking on board all the points we've made, in criticism of your classical liberal model, why should we listen to you? If you want to persuade us, you need to take the conversation forward. You need to take on board our critique and you need to come up with a sophisticated, persuasive reply. Where are we going to find those sophisticated arguments that are going to persuade these radical postmodernist critics that actually they too should value free speech?
2: Well, I like to think and hope my book, though I agree with you, that the hardest core of the hardest fringe of the furthest fringe is not our likely audience. And it it frankly doesn't need to be. The role those people can play in society is constructive, as long as we're all playing by liberal rules. I think the people that we're out to convince There are just a lot of people who kind of believe in free speech and they've, you know, heard about it in college or high school or whatever. But then when you get down to particular cases like, you know, some instance of hate speech or or blasphemous speech, they say, well, not that. And so these are people who are, you know, kind of more moderate and kind of less committed. And I think those are the people who need to hear the case again and again, both the instrumentalist case and the fundamental case, the the case on the values. And I, I think those people are reachable. And I would give as evidence of that the fact that we've made huge progress over the past century. You know, it was my grandfather's lifetime that Ulysses, the greatest novel of the 20th century, was banned in the United States and burned on the docks. And it was within my father's lifetime that the first major gay magazine You know, not a pornographic magazine, a a magazine of essays was banned by the United States government and forbidden from the U.S. mail. That was in the 1950s. So I think actually we're doing well. What I try to do in my book to reach those people is make the case that free speech is really good for minorities and people like me. I'm gay and married and I'm married because of free speech. And I try to make them imagine questions like, so in a world where you don't have free speech, who's actually running that world? And do you trust those people? So I think there are a lot of ways to come at this. And actually, I'm kind of optimistic that we don't need everyone, but we need enough.
1: It's great that you're optimistic, but in the United Kingdom, where I'm from, Scotland just passed a hate crime bill, which criminalizes vast acres of speech. The Law Commission of England and Wales here has proposed that England and Wales should enact similar act. And every day, there are just more and more assaults on free speech and fewer and fewer people seemingly in those institutions where you would expect free speech to be defended, like the New York Times, like Yale, fewer and fewer people willing to man the barricades and defend it. How can you sustain your optimism in the face of this kind of relentless onslaught?
2: Well, I worry about it, as you do. I especially worry about the The poll showing that millennials and younger are less committed to values of free speech and open inquiry and the constitution of knowledge also, which is the system we have for making knowledge, which relies on a lot of institutions and a lot of norms and trusts that if those fall apart, then we lose that ability to systematically distinguish truth from falsehood. So that waning of commitment certainly worries me. One thing I fall back on is what I said earlier, which is so important. This has never been easy or obvious. And in some ways, we're in much better shape now than we were a generation or two ago. One of the things I take hope from is the growth of groups like the Free Speech Union, which is expanding. It may have an international future. And to me, it shows that the group's of liberals and pluralists, liberals in the old-fashioned sense, are beginning to organize and fight back. Remember, we were taken completely by surprise in the last five or so years. We thought, at least in the United States, that the truly illiberal, intolerant versions of Uh, extreme leftism. You know, we knew that that was endemic to academic humanities departments, but we didn't think it would take root in the rockier soil of the real world. You know, real world employers wouldn't stand for it. Well, it came surging out of academia and It just marched rapidly through all those other institutions. In a period of five or six years, it turned out social media is extremely good at propagating those ideas. And we were all shocked by that and demoralized and frankly conflicted because we don't want to deny that, you know, structural racism is a thing. But what's happened, I think, in the last year or so, you can tell me because you're an actor in this, is that pluralists have started to realize, wait a minute, these other people, they're not really on our side. They're not defending our core values. In some ways, they're fundamentally threatening those values. So we have to get organized. And a big change that's happened recently is that progressives in the United States, people who thought that at least they were sort of immune to cancel culture, getting hit, feeling vulnerable, even the small share of so-called strong liberals in America— who feel that they can speak out safely. They're in a minority now, but even almost half of them no longer feel it's safe to express their views. So we're seeing a much broader awareness, a much greater sense of threat. And now we're seeing groups like Free Speech Union, which are forming together with ordinary people to push back. And does it turn the page on everything? Absolutely not. But does it change from a world where only one side is organized and active and has the power of passion and ideas on its side to a world where you have a confident and organized and active group of liberal pluralists, that's a very different world. And I think we're getting there. At least I hope we're getting there.
1: I don't disagree that defenders of free speech and of liberal values in the old-fashioned sense are organizing and pushing back. And there do seem to be the beginnings of a counterinsurgency emerging, but we've left it quite late. We've already lost a lot of ground. So we have a big battle ahead of us. But as you say, if we can wake up every morning feeling cheerful about that, that certainly helps. Jonathan, thank you very much for talking to Quillette. It's been great to talk to you.
2: It's fantastic to be with you. Thank you, Toby.
0: If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette.